close to Jeremiah chapter 42. Jeremiah chapter 42. And the children of Israel are wanting to escape the judgment of God. And they're wanting to go to Egypt. And God says, no. Their flight to Egypt is forbidden. Johanan was once brave enough, remember as the last time we were together, Johanan was brave enough to want to kill Ishmael. He's the one who killed Gedaliah. But now Johanan didn't have the courage to stand up for what he knew was right. He was afraid to trust the Lord and to stay in Judah. Maybe because he was afraid of what the Babylonians might do when they found out that Gedaliah was dead and Ishmael had filled a pit with dead bodies. In verses 1 through 6, these verses cover the request from God's people for Jeremiah's advice. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 42. Now all the captains of the forces... Johanan, the son of Korea, Jezaniah, the son of Hoshea, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near, and they said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition be acceptable to you, and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant, since we are left but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. So the people who are running off to Egypt, including Jezaniah, they go to Jeremiah. And they go to Jeremiah to ask him to ask the Lord, where should they go? And what should they do? And this is something that we all should do when we don't know where to go or what we should do. And even though the people were being deceit, deceitful, there's no better place to go for guidance than God. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. And he'll give us the best guidance in life. And the psalmist said in Psalm 48, 14, For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Today we can get his guidance through his word, the Bible, and through prayer. Seeking guidance for our life from the world's counselors, is the wrong place to look for guidance. The world's counselors ignore God. They don't involve God in their counsel. They, they, they don't involve His Word. And when you get counsel that, that ignores God, that, that doesn't involve God in His Word, you can't give, you know, good, they can't give good guidance about life to anyone. And it results in total confusion and chaos. Every person needs to know where, should, where they should go, where they should live, where to go to school, where to go to church, where to work, where to, who to marry. And God has the answer. And we need to go to him for answers to life. Remember earlier, Jeremiah had been hated and persecuted, but now all the people from the least to the greatest came to him here. They all look to Jeremiah now because they had an important request. They wanted Jeremiah to listen to their petition. And they asked Jeremiah, notice in verse 3, 
They said, Jeremiah, pray to the Lord your God that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. And it's sad that the people hadn't listened to Jeremiah for 40 years. And if they had listened to the warnings that that he gave, it could have saved the nation. But they weren't being sincere about their request here. Because in chapter 41, verse 7, it says they already decided to go to Egypt. They only wanted Jeremiah's confirmation and blessing on their plans. You see, it's very easy to make your own plans and then try to get God's approval of them. Their request to Jeremiah sounded sincere. Oh, Jeremiah, we're coming to you because, you know, we, we, we want you to seek God for us as to where we should go and what we should do. But there was deceit in the leader's hearts, including Johannans, because they had already made up their minds they were going to go to Egypt. And they were hoping that Jeremiah would say, hey, that's all right. I agree with you guys. You know, sometimes God's people take this phony attitude in wanting to know God's will. Instead of honestly seeking God's will, they will go from pastor to pastor asking for advice. Hoping that they'll find somebody who will agree with their hidden agenda. Look at verse 4. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard. In other words, I have heard what you want. Indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you, and I will keep nothing back from you. They went to Jeremiah because they knew Jeremiah would tell them the truth. Anybody who is making an effort to speak for God, no matter how they do it, whether it's from the pulpit, on the radio, through through literature, They need to put aside all attempts at trying to be slick and subtle. They need to give the word of God without trying to be clever and without trying to say nice and pleasing words to the people. When the pulpit's goal is to just say happy things and ignores the negative things, it becomes weak. And it becomes only a platform to tell the people what they want to hear. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, The time will come, and it's already here, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. This is why the Word of God has become extremely weak today. And it has no message today. But when the pulpit can give out God's word like Jeremiah did, holding nothing back and letting it say uh, what, what God means for it to say, then the word of God will become effective again in our day. So Jeremiah agreed to pray to the Lord. And he assured the people, he says, I'm going to go to the Lord on your behalf. But when I hear from the Lord, I'm not going to hold back anything from you. But his words suggest that they weren't going to like what he was going to tell them. Verses 5 and 6. So they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you. 
whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of our Lord, of the Lord our God to whom we send you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord your God be a faithful witness against us. And if we refuse to obey whatever he tells us to do, whether we like it or not, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you to, uh, with our plea. Because if we obey, everything will turn out to be okay for us. I mean, did they not sound really sincere? Oh, Jeremiah, we will do whatever God says we're supposed to do. Whether we like it or not, man, and the Lord can punish us if we don't obey Him. You know, it's hard to understand why their vow to obey sounded so sincere. But when they were tested, they wouldn't obey. Maybe they felt pretty sure that God was going to go along with their plan. And in verses 7 through 22, now Jeremiah tells the people exactly what God says they're to do. So let's look at verses 7 through 10. And it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called Johanan, and the son of Korea the captains of the forces which were with him and all the people from the least even to the greatest. And he said to them, thus says the Lord. So here comes the answer. The God of Israel to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will stay or remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. And I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Well, verse 7 gives us some helpful insight into the nature of biblical prophecy. Jeremiah couldn't set the time for getting the answer to the prayer from God. We can't set that time. Nor did, did Jeremiah say anything to the people until he was sure he understood what God told him. Jeremiah had to wait 10 days before the Lord answered his prayer. And sometimes they'd be happy if it was just 10 days. But sometimes it's 10 weeks, 10 months. You know, we, we don't know. God, in his due time, answers prayer. The waiting period teaches us some things, though. First, it reminds us that we don't learn everything all at once. You don't learn and understand the Bible in just a few days of studying it. It takes many days. It takes years to build up your knowledge and understand the, God, the Word of God. And the waiting time that God you know, makes us wait you know, also tests our devotion. How many times do we say, I'm, I'm tired of waiting. I'm just, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to do it. I'm just tired of waiting. So it tests our devotion. It tests our dedication to God's Word. Waiting is a big test of our devotion. And if we're not willing to spend a lot of time studying God's word in order to learn it better, we're not going to learn it very much at all. To learn the word of God takes a lot of patience like it did here with Jeremiah waiting for the answer to his prayer. And after 10 days, the answer comes to Jeremiah. God doesn't enlighten the, the minds of the disobedient. He enlightens the mind of those who are obedient. If you want to understand the word of God better, then obey it better. Jeremiah was loyal to the Lord, but most of, but, but most of the other Israelites were not. Jesus said this in John seven seventeen. 
If any man wants to do his will, he will know and can he will know whether he is whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking from myself and of my own accord and of my own authority. You see, obedience is the key that opens the door to learning more. It opens the door to spiritual knowledge. If we don't obey the things God has told us, why should he teach us anything new? Why should he tell us anything if, if we're not going to obey? He won't reveal anything new to us. But when we obey, then God will teach us more. So Jeremiah now has God's answer. So he calls the people together there in verse 8. And he reminds them in verse 9. Now remember, this is what the Lord says. And then he tells them in verse 10. If you will stay in this land, then I will build you. And not pull you down, and I will plant you and not pluck you up. He'd shown his compassion towards them because he was saddened over the disaster that he'd brought, up, brought upon them in verse 10. Look at again at what he said in verse 10. He said, For I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. He was saddened by what they were going through. Now, in verse 10, he expresses a very compassionate concern for them in, their, in the current terrible condition that they were experiencing. God says, I'm saddened about the disaster that I brought upon you. But don't misunderstand what God is saying. Even though they had shown only a small sign of the repenting of their sins, God was still grieved over the misery of Israel. And he begins to repent of the judgments that he had brought upon them for their sins. And like I said, understand that that this doesn't mean that God changed his mind about what he had done to them. God's not saying, oh, I'm so sorry that I brought this judgment upon you. I, I just, you know, no, he's not saying that. But what he's saying is, I'm ready to change your situation. I'm ready to give mercy to you. See, God's time to withdraw his judgment on his people And have passion for his servant's sake is when he sees that their strength and their pride is gone. And he will have mercy on those who serve him. And when he sees how helpless they are, he will show them their mercy, his mercy. Look at verses 11 and 12. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. So Jeremiah assures them, hey, guys, you don't have any reason to be afraid of King Nebuchadnezzar. That is, if you stay in Judah. Leaving would suggest guilt for Gedaliah's assassination. They should only be afraid of King Zechariah, King Nebuchadnezzar, if they carried out their plans to go to Egypt. And the basis for their assurance was God's promise in verse 11. Notice he says, I am with you. We don't need to be afraid when we know that God is with us. The promise of God's presence with the people should have been more than enough assurance to take away any of their fears. And he says, I'll show you compassion, suggesting a tender, motherly kind of love for them. And because of the Lord's compassion, King Nebuchadnezzar would have compassion and would let them stay in their own land. 
verses 13 through 17. But if you say we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, say no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid of shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So shall it be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. So Jeremiah here warns the people about the consequences of not staying in Judah and running off to Egypt. If they insisted on going to Egypt, hoping to escape war and hunger, they were making a huge mistake. And remember, Egypt is always a type of the world. And when they left Egypt, Remember, they were crying out, oh, how terrible it was back in Exodus. And, when God, when, and God delivered them from Egypt. And Moses took them, you know, across the Red Sea. And when that Red Sea closed up behind them, it was symbolic of, of saying, you're never to go back there again. But here they are, going back. And God's warning them. You're making a big mistake. And it's the same thing, man. If we go back into the world, it's a big mistake. We're not escaping anything. We're going back to the thing that God took us out of. Egypt wasn't any safer from God's presence than Judah was. You see, our safety and our protection is in God regardless of where we are. And for some reason, the people felt confident that if they went to Egypt, they weren't going to have any more problems. They wouldn't experience the pain of hunger, war, suffering. But Jeremiah warned them. He said, if you guys are determined and you've made up your minds to go to Egypt, the very things that you were afraid of in Judah are going to happen to you in Egypt. God warned them that if they insisted on going to Egypt, they would die there by the sword. They would die there by famine. They would die there by plague. And what they hoped would be a life of freedom and ease there in Egypt would only bring hardship and death to them. Remember, if you reject what you know to be the will of God, always invites disaster. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6.16. He says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. The illustration of the master and servant that Paul uses here in Romans 6.16 it, it, it is pretty obvious. Whatever you yield to, whatever you, whatever you turn your life over to becomes your master. Before you were saved, you were and I was the slave of sin. Sin was my master. It was our master in the world. And now that you belong to Jesus Christ, you are freed from that old life of slavery and you're made the servant of Jesus Christ. And in Romans 6, 19, Paul suggests that the Christian ought to be as excited about yielding to the Lord as he was in yielding to sin. 
A man once said, I want to be as good a saint as I was a sinner. I was a good sinner. We can all probably look back at those days and say, I was a pretty good sinner. The unsaved person is free from righteousness. But their bondage to sin only leads them further and further into slavery to that sin so that it becomes harder and harder to break free and to do what's right. Sin is a cruel master. No mercy. Look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, notice, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter into Egypt, and you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. God's wrath has already been poured out on Jerusalem. And he says, just as my anger and my fury have been poured out on Jerusalem, they're going to be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. And you'll be a target of damnation, horror, cursing and mockery. And you'll never see your homeland again. You know, it seemed like they just didn't learn any lessons from Jerusalem's punishment, what they experienced in Jerusalem. You know, when they saw the city of Jerusalem on fire and they saw the ruins of Jerusalem and in ash. And it should have been enough proof to convince them that God means what he says, that he doesn't play around. Ever since Abraham's lapse of faith in going to Egypt in Genesis chapter 12, the Jews had a tendency to follow Abraham's example. Several times during the wilderness years, whenever they had a trial or a testing, the Israelites talked, remember, talked about going back to Egypt, all oh, the leeks and the garlics, we had it so much better there. Actually, this was their cry at Kadesh Barnea. When they refused to enter the promised land. Oh, let's go back to Egypt. During the final years of the kingdom of Judah, there was a strong pro-Egyptian group in the government. Because Egypt seemed to be the closest and strongest ally to them. Jeremiah, Jeremiah warned them about not going to Egypt. Where they thought they would enjoy peace and abundance and security. And the fears that they were trying to run away from in Judah would only follow them to Egypt. And also the very same judgments that God had sent against Judah during the siege would come upon them in Egypt. You know, it doesn't pay to disobey God. You can't run away from God. God knew that King Nebuchadnezzar would enter into Egypt and he would punish the land, which he did in 586 B.C. Up to 567 B.C. Verses 19 through 22. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Straight up notice, do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent, notice, when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us to the Lord our God. And according to all that the Lord your God says, so declare to us and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent you by me. Now, therefore, know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go and dwell. 
Jeremiah warned the remnant, the remnant of Judah, don't go to Egypt. There was, there was pretty clear. There was, there was no confusion about what God was saying. They couldn't make a mistake about what God was telling them. He warned them that they had made a deadly mistake by asking him to find out what God's will was. You know, for them. When they had no intention of keeping their promise. It was a big mistake that would cost them their lives. And those who seek God's will and then refuse to do it, man, you risk God's punishment. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If we know to do, God, to do good and we don't do it, that's sin. These people know the will of God, but they chose to disobey it. This attitude suggests pride because a person says to God, you know, I know what you want me to do, but you know what, I'm, I'm choosing not to do it. I really know more about this than you do, Lord. Peter said in 2 Peter 2.21, it would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. You know, why is it that people who know the will of God deliberately disobey it? A big reason is pride. Man likes to boast that, you know, he's in control. Hey, I got this. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. Man has done so many great things that he thinks he can do anything. And another reason is man's ignorance about the nature of God's will. He acts as though the will of God is something that he can choose to accept or reject. When in reality, the will of God is not an option. It's an obligation. We can't just take it or leave it. We can't just say, okay, maybe so. He's the creator. We're the creatures. We have to obey him because he's the Savior and Lord and we're his children and servants. We have to obey him. Paul said in Romans 14, 7 and 8, For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Paul's words here, none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself, means that no Christian, not one of us, should serve his own desires in life. Not one of us should presume upon our own will or live according to our own understanding or our own feelings. The Christian is always governed by their relationship to the Lord. So we can put it like this. No Christian lives or dies for their own benefit or for their own pleasure. And this is necessary for Christian living. But the problem with us is that we get so occupied with the details, with details, that we forget the biggest principle of all. Which is that we are to live entirely from life to death to his glory and to his praise. And not for ourselves. And this is one of the basic differences between the Christian and the non-Christian. And many times the Christian lives and does like the non-Christian. Every other person, all non-Christians are living to please themselves. And they live according to what they think is right in their own eyes. 
But the first thing that's true of, of Christians is that they stop doing that. And they now live to the Lord. And Paul points out that this principle is to govern our, even our dying. Now we probably even more likely, we're probably more likely to forget this second viewpoint more than the first. Yeah, we know we're to live unto the Lord. But we're to also to die unto the Lord. Christians willingly say, of course my life should be in God's hands. But what about our dying? I know when I thought about this, I th- I, I've never, you know, thought a lot about this. I know my, my, my life is in God's hand. I am to be living for God. As Christians, though, we shouldn't want to decide when we die. Or how we die. Or where we die. The Christian says, according to Paul, no one dies to himself because he or she is not in control. And that's why to a Christian, suicide should always be unthinkable. It's not so much that the thing is wrong as that it means that the Christian himself is making the decision. And Paul is saying here that whatever a Christian's feelings are, their trials, their suffering, their pain, whatever they might be, they don't decide about their death. And I think we often don't think about this or we think about it very lightly about our right to death. We say when I die, we want it to to happen quickly. My favorite is this. I want to die in my sleep. I told Kathy that. I hope I, I, I die, die and wake up in heaven. And then I read this and go, whoa. We shouldn't say that. Because it's not for us to decide, Paul is saying. It's for God to decide. Job said in chapter 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord has, has said when I will, was to be born and he's going to say when I'm going to be when to die. In fact, remember it says that, that, that death you know, is an appointment. That means I don't get to call the shot. I can hasten it but it's an appointment. Everything we own is given by God and the same God who gave it has the right to take it away. He gave me life. He has the right to take it away. To treat the will of God lightly is just asking for God's chastening in our lives. And a lot of people make the mistake of looking at God's will like it's a formula. A formula for misery when it's just the opposite. It's disobeying the Lord's will that leads to misery. The psalmist said in Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. If you delight in God's words, in God's word, you will delight in his will. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 197, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I think about it all day long, the psalmist said. Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing, nothing causes them to stumble. That's heavy. You have a tremendous peace. If you love the word of God. And when you have that peace, nothing causes you to stumble. The Bible and human experience 
are both witnesses to this truth. And even if a disobedient Christian seems to escape difficulty in this life, what will he say when he faces the Lord? Jesus said in Luke 12, 47 and 48, And that servant who knows his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. In other words, you know, the, the... Punishment for, for knowing the will of God and not doing it is going to be worse than, than not knowing the will of God and then not doing it. What happens to Christians who, delis- who deliberately disobey the known will of God? They're chastened by their loving Father until they submit. If a, a, a professing believer, if one who professes to be a believer is not chastened, it's evidence that they've never truly been born again. God's chastening is evidence of his love that we are one of his children. His chastening is not that he hates us. It's, it's, it's evidence that we're one of his children. And like an earthly father, we spank our children because we love them and we want to help them to respect our will and to obey. So that also our heavenly father chastens his own. Even though we know chasing is hard to take sometimes. But it has a comforting truth that says, I know God's chasing me, but you know what? I know I'm his child and that he loves me. But there's also the danger of losing heavenly rewards. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Paul compared the believer to a runner in the Greek races. And he said, in order for you to qualify for a crown, you have to obey the rules of the game. And if any competitor was found to have disobeyed the rules, he was disqualified from the games and he was humiliated. And his experience would be the loss of the reward that he set out to gain. That was the purpose of him getting into the race to win a reward. But because he didn't follow the rules, he didn't live by the rules, he lost the reward. So even as Jeremiah was talking here, To the people, he could see by the look on their faces in verse 17 when he says he set their faces to go to Egypt. He says they didn't have any intention of obeying his counsel. But they could say a word before I'm sorry, before they could say a word. Jeremiah told them that their disobedience would bring would bring death by sword. It would bring death by famine and death by plague. In the very place they were going and hoping to settle in, which was Egypt, they would experience these things there. Again, in going there, they were hoping to escape the hardship and suffering of war, hunger, and disease. But the very thing they were trying to escape, they would experience there in Egypt. It's obvious that they didn't learn anything from the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They were the same disobedient people after Jerusalem's fall as before. The sad thing is, Judah's stubbornness was no exception. And it continued to be the normal characteristic of the people. And it's the same today. It's the same characteristic of people today. In closing, Jeremiah ended his message by exposing the people's hearts. He announced publicly that they had tried to deceive him. He said, you guys tried to deceive me. 
when you promise to obey the Lord's commands. You see, they really didn't want his prayers or God's plans. What they were looking for is the Lord to approve what they had already decided to do. And that was against his will. But it was a bad and deadly decision on their part. Because if they had carried out their plans, they would die in Egypt. So what happened here to God's people is a warning to us. Not to be insincere. Not to be phony when we ask God, Lord, show me your will. And then when he shows us his will, we disobey. Jeremiah called them hypocrites and deceivers. Because that's what we would be. Father, we come before you. And Lord, what a great chapter, Lord. What a, a lesson for us to learn, God. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. And Father, help us to live not to ourselves, as Paul said, Lord, in Romans 6. Not to live unto ourselves or to die unto ourselves, Lord. But to live for you and for your glory and to die for you and for your glory, God. From from. From, the, from birth to the grave and everything in between, God. Help us to live for you. Help us to bring glory and honor to you, Lord. Father, help us to not be deceivers and hypocrites, Lord. And God, help us to really, truly want to do your will, God. You've given us the ability to carry out your will. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He gives us strength. He gives us wisdom. He gives us guidance. And Father, may we follow him every step of the way. As the word says, be a guide to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.